Fauci, Casey, and JoJo. So as of today, Saturday, October 3rd, if you weren't aware, if you're living under a rock, the president of the United States has contracted coronavirus and not just asymptomatic. He's, uh, as of yesterday, he was admitted to Walter Reed Hospital. So um, this is a special edition of Recommended Daily Dose. We have our in-house expert, Dr. Sarat Sugar. I'm Dr. Clinton Coleman. So surprise, surprise, right? We want to wish everyone the best. So, um, you know, we are physicians, we are human beings. So no matter what your political, where you fall in a political spectrum, you know, we all wish everyone the best, even the first family. Um, That being said, um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think it's a surprise? What do you, what do you say? So obviously, uh, I think it was about saying, but I'll say it anyway, uh, we don't have any inside information about what's happening over there, but as someone uh, who has treated a lot of COVID patients, uh, you know, as, as we're both part of an institution that has seen an inordinate and, you know, unfair share of patients, but uh, we have a lot of experience. So a couple of things, you know, is first of all, why is this not surprising that he may have been moved for more closer observation? Let's just talk broadly is what makes someone at risk. So we know that age over 50, you're much more likely to be hospitalized. So age is a big factor, right? And I right. think uh, the president is uh, 74. 73 or 74, or 74. Sex plays a big uh, uh, um, uh, uh, factor. I don't mean sexy. Uh, I don't mean sexy. I mean okay. male versus female. So, Got it. and the reality, as we know, women are the are the stronger sex, but it has to do with most likely how the innate immune system, as well as perhaps the adaptive immune system, two types of immune system, handles the virus. We know that once hospitalized, males will die at almost a two to one ratio. So, and, and you and I, I think we can speak to our own clinical experience, uh, especially back in the spring, where we saw a lot more males uh, with worse outcomes. So age and male are two strikes against you. Look at other things like being overweight. So if you calculate your BMI, body mass index, your height and your weight, the increasing body mass index puts you at increased risk, as well as things like diabetes. And not, again, people say, well, a lot of people have diabetes. It's not just diabetes, it's either poorly controlled diabetes, undiagnosed diabetes, and then further down the spectrum, things like high blood pressure, uh, immunosuppressed states, et cetera. So those are the risk factors we talk about and that we've seen that have worse outcomes. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say, even with those, and it's important for everyone out there to understand, even with those uh, risk factors, the overwhelming majority of people will still do okay, right? Right. So we're not here to stoke fear, we're here to talk back. Well, let's go back. he, as a person, is at high risk for a severe case of coronavirus. But I think um, those things are harder to change, like his age and you know, right. his weight, give or take. Um, but as far as his risk of contracting it, do, do you suspect that the way they um, did not mitigate their risk as far as you know, not wearing masks, not social distancing, there's some news that the um, the super spreading event was at the Rose Garden with the right. the, the whole judicial so, thing. So, you know, it's like that movie Gladiator. You know, that when they asked the soldier, like, you know, as a versus a politician, you can look. Are at you the entertained? Enemy. Are you entertained? Well, that's a different scene. Are but what I'm saying is, as okay. a physician, you know, we look at just the facts, and the facts are that we know uh, certain situations are more likely to spread. Uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, because it's so highly transmissible. 
Uh, and there's probably no surprise that politicians around the world uh, have been um, overly burdened or have been unfairly uh, um, uh, stricken with COVID-19. You know, look at the Prime Minister of England, the President of Brazil. You see a lot of senators. Why? Because they're out and about. They're shaking hands. They're talking to people. They're in public events. They're in the public eye. So it's much harder for a public figure, obviously, much less the leader of the free world, to home quarantine as opposed to uh, perhaps other people. But you're being you're like being very you're, you're being very masks. political though. Oh, I'm being very uh, there, there are some obvious things that they did not do um, well, as an administration. You do have, have wait, no no no. I, I we we, we know that we know that they don't wear masks. They poo poo masks. He just recently made fun of Joe Biden for wearing a mask. Um, you know you see pictures at the uh, video of the Rose Garden. They're hugging and you know it, there's no social distancing. So. Do you think that was a mistake on their part to not I, you know, take I can't comment it? on that. What, what I can you can. That, Do you, I, yeah. you well, can't I, I can't. What I will tell you is that more likely, again, outdoor transmission much less likely to occur, right, in your outdoors. So you're in the Rose Garden. If you are spread out, you have fresh air, uh, you know, which dilutes the virus from person A spreading to person B. The chance of transmission is much less. If you have enclosed spaces, like perhaps what occurred on Marine One, right, the helicopter where right. people are inside the helicopter, there's no fresh air, probably people are not wearing masks. Um, that even, is a much more efficient way of transmission. Of course, and even the risk of transmission, if you wear a mask, it's five times more uh, risky not to wear a mask. No, we, well, I will tell you, as our uh, knowledge has evolved, we have gotten, and I've said this, we've said this before, away somewhat of the importance of washing your hands, washing your mail. Again, washing hands is very important, don't get me wrong, but cleaning down your mail, uh, cleaning down your groceries, takeout, et cetera. The, the, the chance of direct contact causing transmission is now being is now understood to be much less important as opposed to droplets and aerosols or, or airborne. And again, that's why the mask has shifted into the forefront of, um, of importance in terms of mitigating the transmission. Masks are cheap, easy, down, you know, dirty, down and easy, right? right. Uh, as we say, down south where I grew up. Um, remember, Southern Maryland is south. That That's an easy way to really to mitigate the the, uh, the virus transmission. So again, politics aside, what have you, you know, it's unfortunate that something so simple as a mask, right. which is now proving to be more and more effective, is in some people's minds a very decisive uh, uh, issue. It really right. should so not as we see now, be ubiquitous in its use. Right, as we see now, wearing a mask is apolitical, right? So it doesn't it doesn't distinguish between Democrat, Republican. It, no, you know, it, anyone it is, can get it. And it's part of humankind. You want to, right. you know, ID doctors are very altruistic. I feel maybe more so than nephrologists, I'm sure. But we are there to, you know, because we we are our 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 primary goal here is as physicians is to help people across the board, right? And that that is that is our only only mission. And something like a mask should not be an issue that has uh, political or other um, connotations. This is a very simple issue and very profound and now being backed up by data and science. And that's how we operate. But I wish the rest, you know, I wish everyone would operate that way. It's not always the case. You're absolutely right. Right. Now, are you, uh, can you answer this for me? Are you able to piece together the timing of all of this? Now, they say they've been getting these rapid testing, which is the... Abbott ID now test? Well, there's several. There was one developed. No, but the one that they're using. Um, 
I don't have confirmation, but uh, that test itself has been reported to have a high false negative. But uh, that's right. So you're talking about the saliva test, and actually, yes. my understanding was developed at the University of Illinois um, uh, initially. Um, this is differentiating than the more uncomfortable nasopharyngeal swab, and you know the for, ones that go all the way back into for the demonstrations, brain. Yes. you know, up the nose. And then that is using a technology called PCR, polymerase chain reaction, essentially looking for either for genetic material, in some cases, DNA or viral RNA, uh, depending on the type of virus, to rapidly identify it. So very, very sensitive. That means it picks up the virus very easily. But again, it's a little bit more time consuming. It's more costly. It requires a certain level of uh, skill in the lab. And, you know, it's a little bit, un it doesn't, I'm going to say it hurts, but it is uncomfortable having something jammed up your nose. Now, no, if you it swap something in your mouth, and looking at saliva and getting cells from inside of your mouth, um, obviously, and that could be turned around in like as little as 15 minutes, that would be great. But as you can imagine right now, the sensitivity, at least in preliminary, is not as good. So in other words, you do see some false negatives. Now there's a study that came out of Japan recently saying that no, their series, it was actually very sensitive. But again, we're still waiting for the absolute data, but the hope is that as that test is refined, that can become the more standard of care in terms of diagnostics and testing. And it'll be no big deal. You kids want to go to school, you get a test in the morning. Like right now, my kid fills up a symptom tracker. He has to answer right. some stuff on his phone. If, as long as he doesn't have a cough, cold, et cetera, his phone shines green when he goes to school. And the days he goes to school, he shows it at the door, he's let in. Why not have daily testing? So it's probably not feasible at this point to have something shoved up your nose. And because of the time uh, return and constraints, you can't have a test every day. The rapid test, the hope is that that would eventually replace the nasopharyngeal swabs, and it would be much more um, reasonable to expect a daily test. You know, and that would be a way of preventing outbreaks in schools and in other communities. Right. But the I guess the the question is, does his negative test the day before correspond with his clinical syndrome? Right. So usually. Well, let, let's look across the board. You know. Remind us how that works. So yeah, when you sure. so you're infected on day zero. Are so you general, symptomatic people, day one? The range is between two and 12 days, which is where that first, that two week quarantine time period came from. But the reality is you see a large, we understand now, even people are asymptomatic, so they never have symptoms, or pre-symptomatic, that means they have no symptoms, and then they develop symptoms several days later, they can still spread the virus. So actually the viral load is very high. Having said that, if someone is, a is infected on day zero, a negative test at that time does not preclude them from having a positive test a couple of days later. So it has to do with timing. So if I uh, went to a party on a Friday night and then a, an hour later someone said, hey, you know what, uh, there was a, someone positive there, I get tested Saturday, it's negative, then it may be too soon. But usually within two to five days, people develop symptoms. Even that range is two to 14 days. Within two to five days, most people have symptoms. And within that two to five day period, most people that are going to have a positive test should have a positive test at that point. Okay. Because the viral load actually goes up in people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So in other words, you expect a rise in the virus and then symptoms a few days later. So two to five days is a good time period, but day zero, day one, day two, you could have a false test and have false reassurance. So you don't want to get tested too early or you should repeat your testing a couple of days later and you still quarantine until you definitely have a, a negative test that you can feel more confident about. So in other words, if you have a negative test on day one, doesn't mean you should just go out and about and do things. You can still be positive and you can still spread to other people. If at day five you have no symptoms or mild symptoms and you or let's say you have no symptoms and you have a negative test, you can feel much more confident. Or the on the contrary, if you have a positive test, you should quarantine immediately. 
Yes. Which we, we don't have all the information regarding who was the first person positive. I mean, Hope Hicks was in reports was positive, but it seems like well, we don't have all the information. The way you do contact tracing, right, is you're looking at it, you're trying to build a timeline. She's the one who I was, you know, who, who's for name first came out, but it's right. unclear at the present time. Was she person zero and everyone around her? You basically build a diagram, right? Right. But, you know, there could have been someone else that infected her, that infected other people. Uh, so that, is, and again, we don't have all the data there. And, that's and imagine how complex question. contract tracing would be with, uh, you know, the president of the United States, how many people he comes in contact sure. with, especially during election year, right? But during the whole idea of contact tracing, this is exactly it. You take a cluster, like this, let's say, called the White House cluster, and you're preventing community outbreak. And that was the hope all along, right? As opposed to what happened, let's say here in Teaneck and Inglewood back in March and April and May, where you had widespread community out, uh, outbreaks. There's no way we could have done contact tracing, quarantine at the time. It was too widespread. Right. Now you have a cluster. The whole idea is to prevent community outbreak. You test, you isolate, you quarantine, and that's the way to go. So as long as numbers stay low, and I'm, again, I'm talking broadly across the country, we're able to effectively do that. The, the concern is that certain parts of the country you start developing community outbreaks. We know we have clusters here in the, the tri-state area, right, in certain uh, neighborhoods in Queens, in Brooklyn, in Rockland, and Orange County, uh, there's certain outbreaks. Again, very effectively thus far, they've been able to uh, uh, quarantine, isolate, test, and prevent community transmission. Other states, Wisconsin, where you have rates as high as five or 10%, positivity is a whole different issue. So we have to really be uh, you know, aggressive with our, with our contact tracing. Can you go over the, the clinical course? Because in our, in our minds, we really don't know what's going on behind closed doors in the White House and now at Walter Reed. So all we know is that he had mouth symptoms sure. and didn't develop fever. He got an experimental drug, which we're going to pick your brain about later, and then was transferred to Walter Reed. We don't, we don't know his oxygen level. You know, we no, see video of him walking to uh, the helicopter. Um, people say he looked fatigued. Marine looked one. Please. Marine one. Um, is this is this it, is this appropriate? Like, you know, diagnose day one and then symptoms well, let's, let's hours look at later. Our clinical data and experience that we have. We know there's four phases of this virus, right? So there's the when you first get infected, the incubation period, and then subsequently phase two, where you know, you have, you feel fine, you're incubating, and you could potentially be spreading it, and then you get the viral replication. The virus is now integrated into the body. Is replicating and you have a viral syndrome and most people that's where it ends you have cough you have congestion you have some shortness of breath you have fever a couple of days and then you get better you may have some other side effects of course like loss of taste and smell things like that in a segment of people with the risk factors but not always but in general with the risk factors we just described you get the cytokine storm right so now you're having the body putting everything in the kitchen sink out of this virus and now you're developing worsening infiltrates hypoxia or low oxygen um, that's what's much more concerning. That's a third stage. And then, of course, that can lead to respiratory failure and intubation. And then you can get things like thrombosis. You get blood clots in the body. You get renal failure. You get liver failure. You can develop pancreatitis. You get all kinds of issues. And the fourth phase is like the convalescent phase. So it's like a tidal wave that washes in, now it's washed out. And you look at the collateral damage. There might be uh, central nervous system issues. There might be people who have persistent cough for weeks, shortness of breath. We now know there might be people out there who have CNS, central nervous system issues. They may have anxiety, depression, mental fogginess for long periods of time. We know that some um, even young elite athletes develop cardiomyopathy in large hearts and may be at risk for heart uh, arrhythmias. P 
people may develop encephalitis, um, Guillain-Barre, et cetera. So there's a lot of these long-term downstream effects that we don't know about. So that's kind of the overview. But in general, let's say someone has mild symptoms, that first week is critical. If someone has mild symptoms, it doesn't progress, and then it improves, we feel very good. It's always those people who are having symptoms that are persistent, worsening, and that seven to 10 day period, that's when they come in, that's what happened to us when they were coming to the hospital. Right. Now they're in that phase three, those four phases I described, they're in that cytokine storm. And that's when you and I saw so many people coming in and within 24, 36 hours, uh, developing severe respiratory failure, either being intubated, being put on advanced uh, non-invasive ventilation. So they're requiring oxygen through all kinds of novel techniques. And so that's a continuum, right? There's a whole continuum here. Just like the flu, I used to tell people like, you know, what, you can die from the flu? I mean, some people think the flu, you're just sitting, uh, you know, on your on your sofa, watching TV, eating chicken soup and watching, you know, just and then just napping. No, you can go from that all the way to death. It's a whole right. continuum of disease. But it's that first week that's very critical. So we don't know what part of the continuum he is on, right? All we know is what he had some mild symptoms. Uh, suffice it to say, they gave an experimental medication. Can you review that? And, and do you think that's appropriate given his symptoms that we are aware of? Sure. So, you know, he only tested positive the other day. So the hope here with this is that if you can identify people with risk factors, they can, at least in theory, progress you to more severe disease. We don't want to just wait for it. So I'm talking all comers here and just see what happens. You want to intervene as soon as possible. So what do we have now? State of the art now is people who are hospitalized, remdesivir, which is an antiviral made by Gilead, actually initially looked for Ebola, then was kind of abandoned in 2015, and now looking at um, has antiviral activity against SARS-CoV-2, again, the virus that causes COVID-19. It is not a be-all-end-all, but it's shown that if you give in early enough, that it can help uh, decrease the severity of symptoms. And so now we know that remdesivir has a, by the FDA, Food Drug Administration, an EUA, expanded use authorization. That means it's one step before getting uh, uh, approval by the FDA. Conversely, I should mention, hydroxychloroquine had an EUA that was later revoked by the FDA because the data said, hey, guess what? It doesn't really work. Okay, so we have remdesivir. With people who have hypoxia, hypoxia means low oxygen, and perhaps pneumonia, so a viral pneumonia, we give steroids. Big study out of England uh, found that the drug Decadron, which is a common steroid that we use for lots of different things, uh, had efficacy. So we use remdesivir and Decadron, and then we also look at clinical trials. We're very lucky at Holy Name Medical Center to be part of multiple clinical trials. And he indeed received a cocktail, not the kind of cocktail that you and I like to have on Friday and Saturday nights, but a cocktail uh, by a company, Regeneron. So full disclosure, I am a primary investigator on the same uh, study drug. So Regeneron's a company, biotech company in Westchester, New York, and they have proprietary mice, believe it or not, that produce these monoclonal antibodies. That means these proteins that are clones of other proteins, and they're the same antibodies over and over again. So if I use my fist as the virus and it has a spike, so my thumb is the spike, that's the spike on the surface of the virus, it uses that spike to gain entry into the cell. So it kind of goes like that, hooks in to the body, uses a receptor called ACE2, uh, which is found in the lungs, but also other parts of the body as well to cause disease. This is an antibody that essentially just binds uh, to the virus. Essentially, this antibody neutralizes, that's the key word here, the virus by 
inhibiting or stopping or blocking the spike protein from gaining entry into the cells. So again, this is a part of, we have a study here at Holonia Medical Center, and believe it or not, uh, drum roll please, I was actually the first in the world. So Holonia Medical Center was the first in the world to enroll a patient in this, what we call phase one, phase two, phase three trial. It is a global trial. And the way these studies develop, they go from phase one to phase two to phase three very quickly. But since we were a site identified that had a lot of experience with COVID, we were picked very early. Now they're expanding the sites to multiple sites and obviously a global study. Um, so I, this data is blinded. That means I don't know what the patient's getting. The patient doesn't know what they're getting. So I don't have any access to that data, but they released some preliminary data from one of the arms. So, you know, these studies have different arms. We give the drug um, in the inpatient setting, someone who's sick enough to be hospitalized, we give in the outpatient setting. So someone comes in, they have COVID, but they're not that sick, perhaps like the president. And they say, well, you know what, let's give it to you uh, because you, you have some risk factors that maybe a week from now, 10 days, you could have more severe disease. Let's give it to you now and let's see what happens. And we have a third arm, which is like, let's say someone has it, and they're living with their husband. The husband doesn't have it, but he doesn't want to get it. That's called prophylaxis study. We give it to prevent the disease from happening in the first place. So those are three arms. And that second arm of the outpatient treatment, they released some early data that made it public showing that it indeed decreases the viral load. So that early data, which again, is not peer reviewed, uh, is promising. And that's public data now. Good. So that's the whole Regeneron uh, uh, monoclonal antibody, uh, anti-spike monoclonal antibody uh, trial overview in a quick 15 seconds using my hand, my fist, but no, nonetheless. So what would you expect over the next few days? So we would want to monitor his oxygenation. How is he doing with room air? What does his x-ray look like? Is this his fever break? They'll probably measure, as you know, a D-dimer. That's a measure of the blood clots in the body. They'll measure something called CRP, C-reactive protein. That's a measure of the inflammation in the body. They'll probably monitor his renal function. If it got remdesivir, they'll monitor his liver enzymes because remdesivir can be associated with liver issues or we call hepatotoxicity. And, uh, you know, without knowing any more information, other than what's public knowledge of Walter Reed is that they have a whole presidential suite there where a executive office member can work and just be monitored closely. So I don't think he's in an inpatient setting by any means. Um, that's what they would monitor, but that's, what, that's exactly what we would do for any patient. Right. We send patients home, certainly, with home O2 monitoring. We would call, do telehealth, how are you feeling? You know, what's your temperature? Uh, you know, do x-rays as an outpatient. Are those infiltrates, which is like looking at the x-ray and saying, uh, seeing these white patchy opacities, are they progressing? Are they getting better? So this, these are things that you know, we do all the time for, for every one of our patients. Right. Um, so, well said. So we, I think we're gonna, tie this up but you know we we do wish everyone well no matter who you are um, Absolutely. and hopefully we'll get some more information about what's actually going on um i think um there was one um uh, his his personal physician did send a letter but it was pretty vague but um you know knowing what we know and seeing the patients that we've seen you know um the course can be simple or complicated, but uh, so in the end of the day, I think people, yes, yeah. you know, we have better experience. We have more options in our armatorium to treat this, but the best option always is prevention, just not getting in the first place. And again, prevention best utilized besides social distancing 
with one of these bad boys, right? So I'm in the hospital right now. I'm in a room, so I took my mask off. Otherwise, I walk around with a mask, you know, 24-7 in the hospital. And people just have to realize, wear a mask when you're indoors. Wear a mask when you cannot effectively social distance. Yes, continue to wash your hands and utilize hand hygiene, uh, but realizing more and more that masks make an incredible amount of difference. And that's especially timely because, look, we understand people have quarantine fatigue. The summer, a lot of people were, you know, kind of broke their quarantine. They went outside. They, they spent time with family, and mostly in an outdoor setting, um, which is much safer. It's not completely safe, but much safer than indoor setting. As the temperature changes, as the seasons change, you may expect some people to continue to get together and socialize. But now in the indoor setting, that has the potential, you know, for more efficient transmission. And again, I'd be remiss if I didn't take another opportunity with the whole idea of this twindemic, potential twindemic, get your flu shot. Right? We, this is going to be unprecedented, yes. a flu season going along with a possible second wave of COVID-19, uh, you know, the likes of which we've never seen before. So we really have to be prepared. Yeah. So get your flu shot, wear a mask, continue good, clean hand hygiene, social distancing. Um, eat your Wheaties. Yeah. Eat your Wheaties, right. Get some rest. Uh, we will provide further information as this goes along. Um, please subscribe on our YouTube channel. If you like this video, give us a thumbs up. And you can also hear us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So can I sign out? You know what? I, I think I've talked too much. I think it's time for you to sign out. Absolutely. Be well. That's it. Oh, that's my line, brother. That's my line.